as I pray for us. Father, I ask and pray that the words of my mouth in these next few moments and the meditations of all of our hearts as we reflect on your word would be pleasing in your sight. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ and in his name alone. Amen. Amen. Thanks for standing. You guys go ahead and be seated. Whoa. It is really raining hard out there. Do y'all hear that? It's fun. When I came in to help set up before church, it was sunny and beautiful. We opened up all the courtyard doors. We're going to start out there today. Whew, this has been a weird, weird season so far. All right, my friends, and um, we, we've heard the text. Thanks to Cody and Catherine for helping us with the readings today. We're going to jump into this in just a moment, but I, I do want to kind of add my thoughts a little bit. So what Brian shared at the beginning, uh, he prayed for uh, the two things that have kind of really just blindsided us this week. One, the shooting in Nashville um, at a sister church of ours, Covenant Presbyterian Church, a PCA church just like ours. Uh, and then the other one is praying for the Mayflower Church, that our prayer was that all their interviews would be completed by the end of this week. And what happened instead is they were all arrested. And and I, I've struggled this week. I know all of you have, but just struggled with especially that paradox of praying for something so specifically and being optimistic and hopeful about it. And then the exact opposite happened. Or just seeing just the brutality and the violence in ways that just make you sick of what happened in Nashville. And it makes me say, God, what is going on? What are you doing? And Brian and I were actually talking after church this morning, and he was just commenting on something that I, I really resonated with more as the afternoon went on. And that is, what we're going to see in this text confronts us with a very pivotal question. Jesus, who is he? Is Jesus one that cares about his people? Is Jesus one whose glory will bring healing to broken places? Or will it not? And so in the context of the things that we're wrestling with and struggling with, we come to this passage that tells us a bit about who this Savior we've put our trust in is and a hope that God will show us not only this text to understand it, but to believe it with our hearts that the one described here is faithful and good and just. So we jump into the text with that in mind. I uh, told the folks up in paradise this morning that the thing that strikes me every time I preach on Palm Sunday is the irony of this day. There are so many ironic things happening in Palm Sunday, some that we read about in our text, but some that's kind of more in the sort of broader uh, consideration of what, Palm, what is happening on Palm Sunday. So, for instance, Brian talked about one of these things before our prayer of confession. The people that are celebrating Jesus as he enters into the city are the same people that a few days later would abandon him. And, you know, at least in Peter's case, say, I have no idea who that Jesus guy is. I have no part of him. There's an irony there. The people that are so excited will be the people that turn their backs the quickest. There's also this irony that the triumphal entry, that's another name for Palm Sunday. The triumphal entry of Jesus. It's the moment where he experiences his greatest earthly ministry triumph. 
I qualify it there. I say earthly ministry because resurrection is coming a week from now. But in his earthly ministry, he had been traveling around from city to city, town to town. He was an itinerant preacher, impoverished, relying on the generosity of people, having oftentimes no place even to lay his head. And then finally, at the end of his ministry, he enters in to the holy city, Jerusalem, the city of David. And the people give him the welcome he's deserved the whole time. Shouts of praise and adoration and celebration. Finally, Jesus is being welcomed as a king. And yet, here's the irony. That moment of his greatest triumph is also coupled with the moment of his greatest pain and suffering and sorrow. Because as he enters in Jerusalem, he's setting his feet firmly on the path towards the cross. And there's this weird truth that's being taught to us in the midst of Palm Sunday that in the kingdom of God, sometimes the moment of greatest glory and triumph is also partnered with our moments of greatest pain and suffering. But the irony that is going to capture our attention most today is the one that really comes to the fore in this text. And it's this. This scene is meant to prove to us and to show us what kind of king Jesus is, specifically a humble king, the kind of king that comes into uh, the world and he washes people's feet and he associates with the lowly and he says, I I didn't come here to be served, but to serve. That's the king that we're seeing on Palm Sunday entering into his glory. And yet, in the midst of that very humble scene, we get this glimpse, this hint, this sneak peek that the Jesus that we're seeing entering into the city is the most glorious, the most exalted, the most majestic king that's ever been. And the reason why I say that is because here he is entering into the city as a humble king. But then at the very end of our text, when the Pharisees are trying to get him to rebuke the disciples, he says this. If they don't praise me, the rocks, the very rocks will cry out to worship me. Whoa. Jesus is more captivating, more glorious, more soul satisfying more majestic, more beautiful than anything else the universe has ever seen. And I can say that because he tells us that if he doesn't get the praise of people surrounding him, the rocks will do it for us. What else do you know about in all of creation that can say that? This is the Jesus we're seeing on Palm Sunday. Sorry, my, uh, my mic has fallen off my ear. It's, who knew when I was born with these weird misshapen ears it was going to make preaching so difficult. Let me back up a little bit, though, um, and tell you where I'm getting all this humility stuff from. You know, I've told you that this scene is all about really kind of punctuating this humble king, the humility of Christ. The reason um, that I'm able to say that is because the main detail of the Palm Sunday story, not only in Luke, but also in Matthew and Mark, and John too, by the way, it is the method of entry. 
the, the way that Jesus decides to come into this glorious, uh, triumphant moment. And the way he does it is by riding in on a young donkey. The, the text, if we had started a little bit earlier, if we had started reading a few verses before, we would have seen that, you know, Jesus, for those last few months, he's been on his way to Jerusalem. He's making his way there. But when he gets to the outskirts of the city, he stops. And he says, wait, we've got some things to take care of first. He sends a couple of disciples ahead of him to go and secure his donkey. A young donkey, a colt, a foal, a beast of burden. And he tells his disciples exactly where to find that donkey. He tells them what to say if anyone challenges them. And they go and they do exactly what he said. And they see the donkey exactly like he described. They bring it to him. And he rides into the city on that donkey. And in doing it, he is fulfilling a prophecy. I've got it up here on the screen, I believe. Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, in one sense, Jesus is doing this because he's fulfilling this prophecy that was spoken long ago. But I've got that part underlined at the very end because I don't want you to miss it. It's not just about, oh, Jesus fulfilled the prophecy. That's pretty cool. No, it's what this prophecy was all about, that the king of Israel would come humble, mounted on a donkey, that when he came into his glory, he would be symbolizing and showing the kind of king he is, the humble king. And why is it that a donkey was such a sign of humility? It's because for most kings, emperors, rulers in the ancient world, these moments of celebration and like the parade of victory were chances for them to show off, to ride into town on the war horse or the stallion or a, 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 you know, a, a bronze chariot glittering in the sun. Not a donkey, a young donkey. A beast of burden, as they're sometimes described, usually just to carry baggage and stores. But Jesus, in fulfillment of this prophecy of Zechariah, chooses exactly that way to enter into his glory. It's a humble entry for a humble king. Now the cool thing is, this did not immediately put off the crowds that were gathered there, at least not most of them. You could maybe say that, okay, they, they were there with their palm branches, they were there with their hosannas at the ready, ready to celebrate Jesus, and then he arrives on a donkey. That would be a little disappointing, perhaps. And yet they don't see it that way. They actually respond in the way that they should right off the bat, at least right now. You know, days later, things are going to get a little weird, but they seem to be connecting the dots. They seem maybe even to be understanding that this is what's happening. And so they celebrate. They shout. Like I said a second ago, they shout, Hosanna. Matthew and Mark give us that detail. It's the same thing that we sang in our song tonight, Hosanna in the highest. Years ago, I preached a whole sermon about the history of that word, Hosanna. I'm not going to do that again tonight, so don't worry. Um, some of y'all were there for that probably and were like, ooh, that was a boring one. Hope it doesn't go there again. 
Suffice it to say, Hosanna, this is way too much of an oversimplification, but it means salvation, deliverance. Our God has acted on our behalf. That's what they're saying when they shout Hosanna. And then also Matthew and Mark tell us that they had these leafy branches in their hand. I would pick up these palm branches right here, but I'm afraid they'd all fall apart on me. Um, So I'm not going to do that. But they have palm branches that they're waving in the air. They're celebrating. That was the way in which they they, uh, symbolize victory. Even though Jesus isn't riding in on the the stallion or or the chariot, they still have the palm branches out that they would do for any emperor or king and saying, yes, our God has delivered. Our God has triumphed. But the most important detail of all is the one that we read about in our few verses in Luke tonight. And that is when the people see Jesus riding into the city on a donkey, they begin to yell out a very significant quote. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Or as Luke has it, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Does anybody know where that's from? We uh, cheated a little bit today and already read it at one point in our sermon. Or excuse me, not sermon, our service. It's Psalm 118. We started, we started our time with that call to worship. So yeah, thank you. Up here on the screen. Uh, psalm 18 is a, a very, well, it's a lengthy psalm. It's a beautiful psalm. It comes up a lot all throughout the Gospels of Jesus. And it is this back and forth for much of it, kind of call and response between the king of Israel and the people that have gathered around as he ascends the hill of the Lord, the temple mount. If you think it's weird that sometimes in church we do kind of a back and forth reading where you say a part and then a leader says a part and back and forth, back and forth, we're actually just mimicking a lot of what Old Testament worship looked like when they did the responsive call back and forth. And this is one of them. So as the king is ascending the hill of the Lord, he's going towards the temple, the people gathered around say this, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, we bless you from the house of the Lord. Then the king continues, the Lord is God, and he has made his his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. I included that last part so you know he's ascending to the temple mount. But the big takeaway for us here on Palm Sunday is that in time, this particular psalm took on some very significant meaning for the people of Israel. Because when they had a king, when they were in their land, This is something that would happen regularly. But when they were sent into exile, when their king was gone, when they didn't have this practice or even the temple to do this with anymore, then all of a sudden this psalm took on this prophetic tone, looking forward to the day when the ultimate king would return. The king that would step into the shoes of King David and finally fulfill the prophecies that he would have an everlasting kingdom and reign. And when that king arrived, they would say to him these words, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus arrives into the city seated on a donkey and they wave their palms and they shout their hosannas. But the most significant thing of all is they say, he's the guy. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, quoting straight from Psalm 118. 
This did not sit well with the Pharisees. Pharisees did not think that Jesus was the guy. They did not think he was the Messiah, the King, the Anointed One. And so they essentially say, Jesus, tell these people to shut their mouths. It was verse 39 of our text. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Surely if Jesus is a good, holy, responsible rabbi, he will rebuke these people that are saying such blasphemous things. He will tell them, stop. Don't, don't apply that psalm to me. That is so inappropriate and irresponsible and reckless. That is what they are expecting him to respond with. Surely this Jesus will tell the people to stop. But that's not how he responds. He responds with the closest equivalent we have to a first century microphone drop. I hope you see that. This is one of the most like just boss statements the whole New Testament, when they tell him to rebuke those disciples that are saying these kind of things, he says, I tell you this, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Holy smokes. This humble scene of Jesus riding in a donkey and showing us the kind of king he is also has within it this sort of, it's almost like Jesus pulls the curtain back just a little bit, just a smidge. And we see behind the curtain for a second. We see, oh my gosh, the Jesus I'm dealing with is one so glorious, so majestic, so captivating, so awe-inspiring that the rock themselves are longing to praise him. One way or another, this Jesus will be praised. That's the most astounding thing that I think anyone could possibly say. Is like, listen, me being praised in worship is not an option. It's going to happen. Either you get to do it, or nature will figure out a way to do it. And not just any nature, rocks, stones, pebbles, you know, we have the statement in English, dumb is a rock. Why do we say that? Because there are a lot of dumb things in nature. Plants can't speak or think. Squirrels are incredibly dumb. I saw one run into a car the other day. But the rock is the dumbest of all. It just sits there. It's cold, it's inanimate, it's unmoving, and if left alone, it will sit there for thousands of years and do nothing. And Jesus says, hmm, how can I drive this point home? How about this? Those rocks will miraculously figure out a way to praise me if you don't. That's the Jesus we're dealing with. And so perhaps the question that's looming over this whole text and this whole scene of Palm Sunday, the question I'm going to give you right now is this. Are you going to praise Jesus in the way that he deserves? Or are you going to let a rock take your place? Jesus will be praised. He is that glorious, that desirous. Who's going to do it? You or a stone? I have one consideration as we kind of come down the home stretch here that might help us with that, might help us be people that don't let rocks take our place. And 
It's a consideration on something that is kind of a, a favorite quote of ours here at church. It's a quote that comes from C.S. Lewis, and if you've been around Vespers for much time at all, you would have hear us, heard us say it from up front before. It's a quote from the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I was so proud of my lion picture that I found this week. Do you guys like that? I tried to show it to Brian, but he wasn't as impressed as he should have been. So I hope you guys are. So Susan, one of the main characters in the story, is learning about Aslan, the lion, for the first time. And, and just FYI, th- th- this book is an allegory. It's symbolic. And so Aslan is the character that's kind of a stand-in for Jesus. And Aslan is the king of the land. He's also a lion. And so Susan's learning about him. And knowing that he's a lion, she's a little bit freaked out. So here's what she says. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. I love that. And you know what? I'm probably going to quote that once a year from here on out because it hits the nail on the head like few other things do. No, he's not safe, but he's good. So where the title of this sermon came from today, unsafe, but so, so good. And the, way, the reason I'm connecting this now to what we're seeing on Palm Sunday is that when Jesus drops the mic, when he says, guess what? I am so glorious that I will be praised one way or another. Either my people will do it or a rock will do it. What he's doing there is in a sense saying, I ain't safe. I'm not domesticated. I'm not your little pet that you put in your pocket. Or cozy. Or I'm trying to think of other synonyms that I won't need to qualify. Maybe I can just leave it at that. Jesus is saying he's not safe, not domesticated, and yet he is so, so good because this same Jesus that has just pulled back the curtain a little bit on his glory and his majesty is also saying, I'm coming to you as the humble king. I'm coming to you as the one who doesn't call you a servant or a slave, but calls you friend. And that contrast between a Jesus who's not so safe, but is so, so good, I think is something that our contemporary churches desperately need to hear. I'm going to give you a little bit of an overview of church history in these last few decades. Way, this is going to be way too simplistic in general, but I'm going to go for it. I think years and years and years ago, maybe even 100 years ago, most Protestant churches were their primary focus was this, protecting, protecting the holiness of God, protecting the honor of God, protecting the majesty of God. And so they designed worship services and time together to keep people from being overly familiar with a holy, holy, holy God and with this Christ that we read about today. And the desire, I think, was a good thing. They wanted people to bring honor and worship and respect to God, but a lot of times the worship service would be set up in this way that was, was so formal, so straight-laced, so rigid, because we were so afraid that people would get overly familiar and casual with God that we designed things in a way that would prevent that from happening. But, of course, the drawback there is a, a very serious drawback. 
you spend enough time in a church context like that, you begin to get the impression that Jesus, far from being your friend and the lover of your soul, is distant and cold and unconcerned with the details of your life. So, not surprisingly, decades after that, maybe in the 1950s, 1960s, we had this sort of rediscovery of the Jesus of the Bible. And people were coming back and seeing Jesus and saying, wait a second, he's not cold and distant and far away from me? Jesus is the one that draws near to his people. He's the one that invites them to dine at table with them. He's the one that says, I'm abiding in you as you abide in me. And there's this whole sort of pivot in the church to presenting Jesus in our worship services and in how we gather together as approachable and friendly and warm and comforting and compassionate. And thank God for it, right? If we had generations of people that grew up in the church thinking that Jesus was just cold and distant and far away, then I am so glad that God pulled churches back in the direction of saying, Jesus is the lover of your soul. He's your friend. But, like all things, the pendulum, when it swings back towards the middle, usually continues to travel a little further away from the middle than it should be. And I believe what happened over time is the excitement about this new approach to Jesus meant that his majesty and his glory and his holiness began to fade into the background. And the church forgot about it. Jesus was our buddy. Jesus was our homeboy. (laughs) Jesus was my casual friend that I hung out with. And we forgot that that Jesus is actually the one that is most glorious, most majestic, the most engaging thing in the whole universe that the rocks long to cry out and praise of. And it actually ended up robbing many churches of how impactful the gospel is. Do you realize why it's remarkable that Jesus calls you friend? Do you realize it? I mean, it's remarkable for a lot of reasons, but the biggest one, in my opinion, is it's remarkable because Jesus, the one who calls you his friend, is terribly holy and terribly glorious and terribly awesome. It's the same Jesus that shows up to John in in the book of Revelation and appears to him and he has eyes of burning flame and his voice is like the rush of many waters. When John saw Jesus, he fell on his face as though dead. He was so overwhelmed by the majesty of the Son of God. That's why it's remarkable that Jesus draws near to you and says, you're not my servant, you're not my slave, you're my friend. I abide with you as you abide in me. It is not remarkable when Mr. Rogers comes and calls you his friend. Some of y'all don't know who Mr. Rogers is. But when I was a kid growing up, Mr. Rogers was this really friendly guy who wore this cardigan sweater vest and sang a song about won't you be my neighbor. The most like nice and uh, tender, compassionate guy. So when Mr. Rogers comes around, puts his arm around you and says, won't you be my friend? That's not remarkable. That's what he does. 
When Santa Claus comes and puts his arm around you and says, won't you be my friend? That's not remarkable. That's what Santa Claus does. When Jesus, the eternal son of God, the one whom the rocks long to cry out and praise of, when he comes and puts his arm around you and says, you're my friend, that is remarkable. That is mind-blowing. And that's a big part of what we mean by the gospel. I think we've gotten very comfortable with Jesus. We've gotten very safe, so to speak, with him, or made him safe in our own perception. And perhaps the reason that I'm preaching all this today is to say, I think we need to be a little less comfortable, a little less safe. I joked with the folks of In Paradise this morning. I was like, am I allowed to say that? Is that going to get me fired? Preaching. Oh, what was the sermon about? Oh, our preacher said be less comfortable with Jesus. <laughs> that sounds terrible. But I hope in the context of what I've been preaching, you see what I mean. My point is not to drive a wedge in your relationship with Jesus or make him distant for you or make you afraid of him. No. My point is for you to see once again the glorious, majestic, awe-inspiring nature of this Jesus who calls you friend and is the lover of your soul. To recapture the, the mystery and the beauty and the awesomeness of that. And say, no, he's not safe. No, he's not my casual, familiar homie. He's the awe-inspiring, eternal son of God. But you know what? He is my savior and the lover of my soul. Whoa. That's what I mean with maybe we should be a little less comfortable. It's a weird, I started with talking about irony. Maybe I'll finish with irony too. It's a strange irony that perhaps if you were to dial back the comfortability a little bit, that the result would be that you would actually be drawn closer to Jesus. Your relationship with him would be more joyful, more close, more intimate. Because you see the ramifications of this Jesus, the one whom the rocks long to praise, calling you friend. We talked about how the question looming over all of this is, will I praise him or will I let a rock take my place? And I hope by the end of this reflection, that question is preposterous to you. That there would be no chance you would let a rock take your place of praising this Christ. And I, and I hope that the reason it's preposterous is not because I preached at you or chided you or coerced you into doing it. But rather because your eyes have been opened to see Christ as he truly is. And you say to yourself, how could I do anything else but to praise this Christ with all that I've got? Let me pray for us. And then we'll head over to the table to get ready for communion. Lord, please open our eyes to let us see Jesus as he truly is. To celebrate like these disciples did on Palm Sunday. To say, you are the anointed one of God. 
you are our deliverance, you are our salvation, and you are the most glorious thing in the universe. Praise your name, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. In just a moment, I'm going to have our elders come with me to help distribute the elements. We're going to set up at the three different aisles and have you guys come forward um, and just hold on to the bread and the juice that you get. Take it back to your seat so we can all take together as a body of faith together. Oh, and also, as you know, we have the gluten-fred, <laughs> gluten-fred, gluten-free bread. Uh, on this, we're going to do it on this aisle as we've gotten in the habit of doing it. So gluten-free for those who would like it. But before I serve, I'll say this. So much of the focus of what I was studying this week and what I just preached is, ah, I don't want to be familiar with Christ in that way that makes it just casual, makes me just shrug and be like, ah, Jesus, yeah, he's the lover of my soul. I want my eyes once again to be opened up to what that means and the fact I'm in relationship with the most glorious being in the universe And maybe the same could be said for communion. Don't let this be routine, casual, familiar. Be prayerful as you come forward today. Jesus, show me what you're doing in this. Show me how the one that the rocks long to cry out is also the one who is serving me at table. Maybe this could be a means today of opening up all of our eyes to the majesty of Jesus who also says, I came to serve you. Obviously, that makes sense most in the context of those who have committed to Jesus in faith, who have been baptized in his name. If that's you, I invite you forward to take and eat and take and drink and know that Christ is good. If you're not a believer in Jesus, we are glad you are here. You are welcome, and I hope that you would come back over and over and over again, but please know that this meal is for believers in his name, and we'd ask that you not partake until you're ready to commit to him in faith. And we'll be there waving the palm branches to celebrate that when that day comes. Let me pray for us now. Lord, show us. Show us how you serve in this meal. And feed us, God, with all that we need to grow in faith, to grow in grace, to be strengthened in you. It's in the name of Jesus we ask. Amen.